You guys know that I have a passion for the gospel that I see articulated in the scriptures, not so much that we've been kind of just casually gotten into as Christians um, as we help people to come into a place of reconciliation out of the wrath of God into reconciled to him, out of darkness into light. And last week I gave you kind of an overview, you know, what is the gospel, just like, you know, a, a statement. Why is the gospel necessary? Kind of a statement with some scriptures. And then how does a person respond to the gospel? And I took you to the place in the gospels where Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom. I don't remember if he said God or heaven is at hand. So, so Jesus is saying that the response to the gospel that, it, that enables us entrance into the kingdom, which is a, a way to say reconciliation with God, has two pieces to it, repent and believe. Um, last week, I expounded upon repentance, and um, if you want my notes, let me know. I'll, I'll update them again. They, they continually change, but I'll update them again. Anybody wants them, I'll give you a notes um, you know, like a PDF file I can send you electronically, because there was a there was a phenomenal definition of biblical. Don't tell Teresa I ate a donut out there. Now I'm hiccuping. Uh, a, a phenomenal biblical definition of repentance that that you should understand because it's necessary if we're going to truly repent. Today I'm going to talk about the second part: believe. Um, there was a young man, you know, 50 is young to me now. He was very much younger, but a pastor, a youth pastor, now a senior pastor, at a funeral for his grandpa. And, and it was packed out, and he shared, like, why his, he knows his grandpa's in heaven and not in hell. And he said, does anybody want what my grandpa has? Do you want to go to heaven instead of hell? And he said, here's what you need to do. You need to repent and believe. Who wants to repent and believe? Raise your hand. Let me see. Raise your hand. Who wants to go to heaven and not to hell? Raise your hand. Yes, yes, yes. Hands going up every place. I'm about to fall out of my chair. He gets done. He prays a little prayer. Everybody goes home. I didn't say anything to him. I don't know if I should have or I shouldn't have. I think in the excitement of the moment, he just got carried away. He didn't tell him what to repent of or what to believe. They could have, matter of fact, most people that don't have any kind of churchy sense, when you say repent, that's not even a word that they would ever hear in their day-to-day lives. And believe has a connotation that isn't consistent with what it means biblically to believe, to become saved. So all these people essentially were told they would go to heaven and not to hell, and they got to pick what they would repent of and what they would believe in because he did not articulate the gospel to them. People would say, well, you're so fussy. I'm like, man, if any of those people stand before Jesus and they're not actually okay, but they thought they were when they passed out of this life into the next one, that's about the worst possible thing. No, that is the worst possible thing. Somebody goes to hell and they know it, like they made that choice consciously. They said, nah, heck with you, Jesus. I don't care. I'm living my life my way. Well, it works itself out. But somebody who was told they're okay and they're not, but because you were in that position where you know you, you were perceived to know and you told wrong, that's a horrible thing because they can't fix it then. So today, 
what is the gospel from the, or what is the response to the gospel from the perspective of not repenting, but believing. But I'm going to give you a little bit of review at the beginning. So here's a, here's a way to describe the gospel. The gospel, not the response to the gospel, the gospel. The way, the gospel is the way into a love relationship with God where a person can be forgiven of their sin debt to God, be born again without the stain and corruption caused by their sin, and have the very righteousness of God imputed to them by faith. So Jesus' blood satisfies every sin that's ever been committed, every sin that's being committed, every sin that might ever be committed. But it doesn't mean that every person is saved because he shed his blood. It's applied by faith. So a person who doesn't express faith, not faith like we think, okay, I believe in Jesus, but biblical faith that we're defining last week and this week, the fact that his blood satisfied that means nothing because it was never applied to them by faith. Okay? All right. So one of the things we talked about last week was um, many, many people think that they're a good person, so they're going to go to heaven, right? And and they can they can always, I mean, I was the same way. I would have thought this was true. I'm a good person, I'm going to go to heaven. The question I would ask that person today is, what's the standard for good, right? What's your standard? Because I'm going to heaven, you might not be, and you may be, in by your standard, way better than me, more good than me, but it's not going to get you to heaven. On the way to church this morning, the Lord showed me this, reminded me of this scripture. Imagine Jesus is in Judea, and he's sharing the kingdom with the people that will listen to him. They're Jewish people in Jewish culture. They have a relationship with God that's established in the Mosaic Law. Do this, don't do that. If you do this, this is the punishment. If you don't do that, this is the consequence. Here's how you make atonement for it. Three turtle doves, you know, this whole process of legally having a relationship with God by keeping law. But they knew that they weren't keeping the law. That's why they had to do the sacrifices and the offerings and the sacrifices and the offerings. And once a year they did a thing called, I don't know what it's called, but it's the Day of Atonement where where they could make atonement, the priest would make atonement for the sins they didn't even know they committed once a year to get them into a, a place of, of sort of right standing with God. Well, there was this group of Jewish people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were like every jot and tittle. It's like if you had a little bit of spice, they made sure they carved out a tithe because they had to follow the law. If you were a regular Jewish Joe, knowing that you weren't able to keep the law, the people that would be almost unattainable to you would be the Pharisees. Like those guys are the good guys. You'd believe that because they told you they were. But that would be like the standard of perfection in Judaism is the Pharisee. Okay? Now, the problem that mankind has with God is righteousness or, or, or a lack of righteousness. Right? We are unrighteous before God. Therefore, we are unworthy. We cannot spend eternity with him in an unrighteous state. They saw those Pharisees as being the most righteous examples of anybody on earth. Certainly, if anybody's okay with God, it's the Pharisees. Jesus is saying this to the people. Matthew 5.20 For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
to the average Joe Israelite, they, they just said to themselves, I'm screwed. If a Pharisee can't get in, I, there's no chance for me. What Jesus was trying to say is nobody can get in. Nobody has the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that is why we have the gospel. So that we can have, we can attain to a righteousness, the righteousness, absolute righteousness, the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Christ Jesus. Got it? No matter how, I know you know, no matter how good a person is, if the Pharisee can't go, I can't go. The choice is not just heaven or hell. We have to be careful that we don't present heaven in opposition to hell. Because nobody, if they had any understanding of heaven and hell, would ever choose hell over heaven. The, only, the, the person that would say, hey, you know what? I'll party with my friends in hell has no concept of hell. Zero concept of hell. None. It's not... It's not not about heaven and hell, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would have eternal life and shall not perish. Perish is hell, eternal life is heaven. So it's not not about heaven and hell, but if that's the beginning and the end of the conversation, you almost can't make a disciple. The question is heaven or hell. Do you want to live in the light or the darkness? You want to follow the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, Satan, and, and serve and satisfy every lustly, fleshly, worldly pleasure? Or do you want to be righteous and follow Jesus and deny those things in your life? What, what is it that you want? Because Jesus offers you a choice at a fork in the road. You can have this one, the darkness, or you can have this one, the light. But you can't have both. You can't say, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to go this way, but I'm going to bring hell with me in my life. Because you can't. They're mutually exclusive. Does that mean that you can't ever commit a sin? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means the position of your heart is, I choose you, Jesus, and everything that comes with you, Jesus. And by choosing you, Jesus, like when, when I got married, I said the things, right? When I married, when I married Tim and Hannah, I don't remember if you had your own vows or not, but I said, you're welcome to speak your vows, but you're going to speak these two, or you've got to get somebody else to do it. And he, and he said, I choose you. I choose you for no matter what. Whether it's good, I choose you. If it's bad, I choose you. You make a choice. I choose you. She did the same thing. She, he didn't say, I choose you, but I might add some other girls if, you know, if I feel like it, right? Because you, you, you renounced them, that you would keep yourself to her alone and nobody else. And you did the same thing. That's what's happening. We're getting married to Jesus. We choose Jesus. We don't bring the world into our relationship with Jesus. It just doesn't belong there. It can't be there. When you choose Jesus, you're saying, I don't choose the world. I choose this, and, and by definition, I don't choose that. So whatever those things are that might be in life that you want but they're contrary to Jesus, you put them down. And it's brutally hard because your flesh wants what it wants. But God will change us from glory to glory into the likeness of Christ. So that's the decision. It's not just heaven or hell. From Keith's funeral, there was a guy, I read you the thing that he put out on his social media post. A little chunk of it said this. This funeral was truly a celebration of life, and I was truly moved by it. Made me think of my own life and whether I could live it or excuse me, whether I could let it go or just keep living it. 
That's really the choice. He was confronted with the choice. Do I want to keep living my life, reliving my life? What does it mean to relive your life? Here's what I think the guy was trying to say. Is there's, there's something that I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that will bring me satisfaction, that will bring me fulfillment, that thing where I'm the perfect peg for that hole, the way it's designed, that's going to be satisfying to me, and I will have found what I'm looking for. So he goes around in life and tries this, and he goes around in life and tries that, he goes around in life again and tries this, and he's forever searching for something that the world cannot give him because he was made for the pleasure of God. Where do I want to give it up? If he gives it up, if he really truly gives it up, then he'll find that thing that he can only find in one place because his maker made him to be drawn to that place. And that's the decision. Do I want to keep reliving my life? It feels good, the pleasures of the, you know, the lustful pleasures of life, the something of the eyes and the something of the flesh. I, I forget that scripture. But that stuff, it does bring some kind of pleasure or, or satisfaction, but it don't bring life. It can't bring life. Only life comes from Jesus. That's the decision. The gospel is appropriated by faith. What is this faith that extends? Remember, there's lots and lots of expressions of faith. Someone's sick, and, and they believed when Jesus was praying for them. The lady, the lady didn't even get prayed for, right? She comes up, she grabs the hem of his garment. Her faith drew the power of heaven down through Jesus. He felt it go by. Whoa, virtue. And she got completely healed. That's faith. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is when you respond to the gospel the way the gospel indicates that you do. So what is saving faith? A definition. Saving faith is expressed by the sincere confession, decision to repent toward God, repent toward God, and trust that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was by itself the only sufficient and acceptable payment for a person's sin debt to God. Repent and believe. Saving faith. Repent and believe. So, what does it mean to believe? The, the, the thing that the pastor, bless his heart, left out, Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and, or confess with your mouth and believe. That, that What do I believe? There's no single scripture. I like, what did I say? My butt puckered, remember? Made Patty laugh. When I was preparing this part of the sermon, scriptures come to me. God blesses me. He gives me scriptures. They come all week long. I just record them. I sit down. I try to organize them. Sermon, right? I get to this part. I don't have that scripture yet, the scripture that defines belief. So I'm like, Okay, here we go, Lord, the believe one, you know, nothing comes. Then I start thinking to myself, okay, I'll just think of it, because I know a lot of scriptures, I'll think of it. I can think of all the ones that tell me to believe, I can't think of the one that tells me what to believe. That's when my, I had that puckering experience, like, <laughs> like holy smokes, either I've been not teaching the truth, or, or I've been teaching a truth I can't defend, which... I never want to teach something that I can't defend. And then the Lord took me to scriptures. So sometimes you get the answer because a scripture is explicit and it gives you the answer. And sometimes you get the answer because you read all the scriptures and all the scriptures. It's like when you're a kid and you got a coloring book and you connect number one dot to number two dot. It looks like nothing. Number two to number three, number three to number four. You find you get to number 28 to number 29, you're like, that looks a little bit like a bunny. 
And when you finish it out, all of the dots connected. You can see exactly what that thing was to be. And sometimes that's the way you have to use the scriptures is to connect the dots. Hey, Caitlin, there's a plug right there by you that will make that fan go on, if you wouldn't mind. I'm going to get a little gamey up here. I thought I did, but maybe a little bit more would be good. Yeah. So um, let me make a statement here. Let me define the believing part of saving faith, and, and then I'll show you the scriptures. Uh, uh, not all of them, but I'll give you some scriptures that start to paint that picture so you can see that, that my statement is supported by the scriptures. Okay, to believe, the part like repent and believe. To believe, as it relates to saving faith, is to place our faith, our trust, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is absolutely and completely sufficient to pay or satisfy our debt to God resulting from our sin. So believing that I, I had a sin debt between me and God, a debt, I owed him for a recompense for my sin that I have no way to pay, but that Jesus, what he did, did pay that debt absolutely and completely, my trusting in that. Uh, completely to pay, satisfy our debt to God resulting from our sin as the wages of sin is death. That's bad English, but that's the way it reads. The wages of sin is death. We acknowledge that by his resurrection, his sacrificial death was accepted by God as recompense for our sin. So the believing part says, I have a debt I can't pay, but Jesus paid that debt. And by me trusting in the sufficiency of what he did, I believe unto salvation. That's it, right there. All right, let me show you the scriptures that say that. 1 Peter 2.24. And, and what you want to do is, is look for the places, I'll probably highlight them with my voice a little bit, but look for the places that support what I just told you. And he, he being Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. So he bore our sins. He took on him our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, Jesus, for the unjust, us, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is a very powerful one. He, being God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took our sin onto himself. If he took it onto himself, where is it then? It's on himself. Is it on me? Is it on you? Even for Mexican people, and Irish people, and German, and this, I'm like a mutt. But he took it onto himself, it come off of us. So that we can take his righteousness onto us. That's the transaction. The transaction is my sin became his sin. His righteousness became my righteousness. Now, I am the righteousness of God in him, and he bears the justice associated with my sin. Because sin doesn't just go away. There has to be justice, right? He who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the imputed righteousness of God into him. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So, so the curse of the law, what's the curse of the law? The curse of the law is that it empowers, the power of, uh, power of sin is the law. It empowers sin. And sin brings death. I was making a point in there. Anybody think of what that might have been? He redeemed us from the curse of the law. The curse of the law. So the curse of the law on a person is that you can't keep it. Therefore, you sin, and that empowers death, and you're eternally judged in that sin. That's the curse of the law. But he delivered us from the curse of the law. Because once we're in Jesus, we are no longer under the law. There's one you might want to ask me about on Thursday. That is absolutely glorious that you are no longer measured by your behavior. So if you commit a sin, guess what? If you're in Christ, you're not under the law. You can't wreck your eternal relationship with God by committing sin. What if I did a hundred? Can't. A thousand? Can't. A million? You might want to check if you were ever actually in Christ if you committed a million. But the point is, if you're truly in Christ, you're not under the law. He delivered us from that. The law or the curse of the law. The law of sin and death. Man, that's huge. That's a good one. Okay, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse. I think I just read that one. Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do. See, the law is holy and righteous and good, but it was a failure because it couldn't bring righteousness. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, man, that's huge right there. you got to understand, he was an offering for my sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Walk according to the flesh or walk according to the Spirit in this context is not like I'm doing a good walk this minute. It's I walk according to the Spirit because he's in me. Not because I'm behaving at this moment or not behaving at... There, there is a walk in the Spirit and walk in this flesh. Like, who are you listening to? But this is for the saved person. They only ever walk in the Spirit because they're born again. Titus 2.14. Who, now Titus speaking of Jesus, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, which would be sin, and to purify for himself a people for his own purpose, zealous for good deeds. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confessing his lordship, I just heard Teresa was listening to Dan Moeller the other day, and he said his lordship is the governing authority of your life. So when you confess Jesus as Lord, what you're saying is, I'm no longer the governing authority of my life. That Jesus is the governing authority of my life. So, so where my will and his will agree, it's easy. We just go there. Where my will says this and his, like, like love your enemies, right? And his will says, or your will says, punch my enemies. Yeah, we keep our hand in our pocket and we walk with Jesus, the governing authority. The part that says, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, is another summary statement. But basically it's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, we'll talk about this when we talk about what's not the gospel. If you don't believe in an actual resurrected Christ, then you're not acknowledging him as an acceptable offering for your sin. Because if he stayed dead, he had sin. If he had sin, he can't be offered for my sin. 
So, so when he says that we believe in your heart that he was resurrected from the dead, what, what he's summarizing is your faith in the fact that he was an acceptable offering to God for your sin because death had no hold on him. The wage of sin is death. If he had sin, death would have had a hold on him. But he didn't, and it couldn't. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed or ransomed, as some translations say, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Redeemed or ransomed, debt paid, um, with the precious blood of Christ. Isn't it interesting in the world... If you could have an ounce of gold, you'd rather have a pound of gold. If you could have a pound, you'd rather have a ton. If you had a ton of gold, you'd have everything. And you know what it would be worth to God relative to your sin debt? It's spit. It's good for nothing. It can't even begin to approximate. Maybe you even needed 100 tons of gold. You say, God, i got 100 tons of gold here. Does that take care of my sin? It's like I can't even see your gold compared to your sin. Our unrighteousness is so foul compared to God's perfect righteousness, that only the perfect and spotless blood of the Lamb was sufficient to satisfy that debt. That's a beautiful scripture right there. So, what does it mean to believe? That you place your faith, your trust, you believe that Jesus bore the full measure of your sin on the cross, right? There's no more to be done. Not by you, not by anybody else, just by Jesus. And that his offering of himself paid 100% of your sin debt to God. And here, everybody, everybody like, perk your ears up. Understand that this can be the only payment for your sin debt you offer to God. Anything above, beyond, or in addition to this makes Jesus' work on your behalf void. How can that be? If I said, hey, Margie, I'm going to sell you my car. She said, what do you want for it? I say, $1,000. I say, the blood of Jesus. And she says, I'll give you the blood of Jesus and a dollar. Can't pay for my car. You can't add anything to it. It's not like God doesn't want it. It's not like he's only going to accept the blood of Jesus. The minute you add something to it, what you're saying is the blood of Jesus wasn't sufficient for it. That's the way the Bible reads. So, so when I, sorry, be tricky a little bit. I don't mean to be tricky, but I want to confront people. I say to them this, okay, let's make sure you really understand. To be saved, to go to heaven, Christian, you have to be a good person. Don't answer it out loud, because I might get you. Most people, I'm telling you, not Caleb Green, because he's the only one that ever answered it right, all this stuff, not Caleb Green. If a person says, well, yeah, I have to be good to go to heaven, my response to them is, you're not going to heaven. But I've been in church my whole life. I love Jesus. I say, well, you know, I don't know about how long you've been in church. And I don't know how much you love Jesus. But if you believe that you have to be good to go to heaven, then you're not saved. Because you've added to Jesus' sacrifice as a necessary component of your salvation. Anything above that makes you not saved. It means you're under the law. And guess what? Whatever that extra bit you were going to put in isn't enough. It has to include the keeping of the entire law. Do you understand? It can't be like us. Okay, well, what's good enough? Am I good enough? No, you need to be a little better. Okay, that's good enough. You can be my friend. You can't offer anything but the blood of Jesus. Take that back to Mexico with you. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus plus my commitment to be a good person makes me saved, not saved. Run me down on that one on Thursday. Seriously, man, because that's a huge fortress 
in Christians' minds. So here you go. Here's Pat Brady. And I just left this life into the next life. I'm standing. There's a, there's a fork in the road. I'm either going to go to heaven or I'm going to go to hell. And that's where I'll be forever. And I'm standing before the Lord, and he says to the angel, okay, who's this guy? Pat Brady reads my social security number, gets out my file. And it's pages and pages and pages and scrolls and telephone books and reams of lists of every, what's the thought? Every idle thought, every bad word, every actual physical sin, every lust, every steal, Every everything, all this stuff, it's like takes ten months for them to read all my sin. And he says to me, What do you have? What do you have to offer as as recompense for that sin? There's only one answer. I open my hand and I say, I got this drop of blood from the Lord Jesus Christ. I have nothing to offer you but this right here, just this little drop of blood. That drop of blood right now is what I offer to you on behalf of all of that. And guess what comes out of God's mouth? Well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into your master's rest. Because I did what was necessary to be absolutely righteous as God is himself. And that is I expressed faith in Jesus Christ by choosing to repent from my sin and trusting that his payment was sufficient. So all that stuff to help you understand all those words, the gospel is this. You're dead in your sins and trespasses. You're going to go to hell. You're going to burn in the lake of fire eternity except for God made a way for us to come. How do I take what he did and apply it to my life? Choose to repent from your sin. Sincerely in your heart, tell God, I'll live your way and believe that the price Jesus paid. That's the response. Done. Easy. It's not that hard. Only Pat could make it seem so hard. But I'm just telling you, that's what the Bible says. So you can knock down every single fortress or paradigm or bad teaching or whatever and you can challenge me. I won't get mad at you. I'll be happy with you if you challenge me. But what about, but what about, but what about? Go to the scriptures. I would be, um, I don't know if remiss is the right word. I feel like a fancy talker right now. It would be wrong for me to say that that's the gospel, which it is. But not also say that Jesus said, if, if let's say Patty doesn't know Jesus, and I've shared the gospel with her, and she wants to respond positively, like the way the Bible says. I'd say before you do, Jesus himself says you need to count the cost of that response. What is that response going to cost you? Now, salvation is a free gift from God. It's by his grace. He doesn't have to give it to anybody. It's only because he chooses. That's why it's free. But the cost is everything. What do you mean everything? I mean everything. Whereas, <laughs> it's like me and Pastor Jim, you know. Show me in that book of yours. Say it. Somebody say it. Come on. Come on. I dare you. Show it me in your book, in that book of yours. I'm going to. Let me just tell you before I do that. The gospel is not a call to conversion, but to a transformed person and life that culminates in glorification. That's a big deal. See, if all you preach is heaven and hell, it's me now, heaven. But see, there's this point called conversion born again, 
regenerate. There's a million words that you can use that that moment that you sincerely express faith to God based upon the gospel that has the power to save you, that minute you're converted, you're transformed, you're changed. Your spirit becomes one with God. You're, you're a new person in Christ. And then there will come a moment at some point in the future, it could be one second, it could be 50 years or more, where you're glorified, where, where you go up and you be with God and you be glorified. The window of time between when you're born again and when you're glorified is called disciple. It's called disciple. See, the goal is to become a disciple, not to be born again. The goal is to become a disciple, a follower, a representer of Jesus Christ in this world. That big window called disciple, we don't talk about like we should talk about. Disciple. Teresa gave me good thoughts this morning. I just, I don't know, Teresa, I want to just share with you. I've kind of said this, but Jesus did not suffer and die so that we could add heaven to our sinful, living for self, worldly, fleshly pleasures life. See, he, he didn't suffer and die so that we could bring hell with us, but have a ticket into heaven. Jesus, Jesus suffered and died so that if we choose, if we choose, it's not automatic, if we choose, we could suffer and die to ourselves, our old life, and live according to him and his righteousness as his disciples. Now let me, let me just open my book and, and prove to you about it costs everything. Luke 14, 25 through, I think it's 35. I don't, I don't have the end part in my notes here. Now large crowds were going along with him. Him is Jesus. And he, Jesus, turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, and <laughs> if nothing draws you Thursday night, if I don't explain this one, this will bring you here on Thursday night. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let me just tell you, that's Jesus talking. That's not Pat Brady. That's not the hateful, mean Bible translation. That's the words of Jesus Christ. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him, against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So is Jesus calling me to hate my children and hate my parents and my wife? He's not. The, the short explanation is that he's saying that if my devotion to him doesn't look in comparison to 
like my devotion to the most dear things to me is hate, then I'll never make it as his disciple because the call is so high. So when somebody is hearing the gospel and willing to respond to the gospel, if they come into this love relationship with God, this this born-again relationship with God, thinking that it's about making their life better, they're deceived. And, and they're deceived because we didn't tell them. Right? That's why people don't want to respond to the gospel. Because I tell them what the book says. You, you, you got, I mean, Bob Marsden, remember to pray for Bob Marsden. He's in the hospital. He had a bad car crash. But Bob came to me one time when he went to this church. He's like, Pastor, we need a new sign. I'm like, okay. He said, I'll tell you what I need to say. Church on the street, come here and die. I'm like, there is a biblical sign right there. But nobody wants to come and die. They want to come and live. But they don't understand. Unless they die, they can't live. Right? I'll leave the rest of that for Thursday. Here's here's my summary and your takeaway of the of the last two Sundays. All of mankind is unrighteous is unrighteous before God and judged to God's eternal wrath, which which we see in the scriptures, hell and the lake of fire. All of humanity is unrighteous before God. Everybody, even the Pharisees. Man is unrighteous because of two reasons. First is the corruption that they received at their conception from their father, Adam. Adam's corruption is our corruption. So before we even started committing sins, we were already corrupt in Adam's seed. The second way we're corrupted is that we then, because of our corruption, because of our fallen nature, we commit sin and have separated ourselves eternally from God. The gospel is the good news that despite man's rebellion against him, God provided a way of reconciliation, salvation, redemption, all words that mean the same thing, to him, God, by way of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. That's the way back. The saving effect of the gospel is not automatic. It must be responded to by saving faith, which is defined biblically as repentance towards God and trusting, believing in the benefit of the sacrifice of Jesus for the payment of a person's sin debt to God. If the gospel is properly, sincerely responded to by saving faith, a person is imputed, given the righteousness of God himself in Christ Jesus. This righteousness, here's, here's the, like, like, what's the good news part, you know, after I had to die and give away all my possessions? <laughs> this, ra- this righteousness that's been imputed makes a person now eternally right at peace with God, and this person is called saved, justified, regenerate, born again, and will spend eternity in heaven with God, having the wrath associated with his sin credited to Jesus' account and paid for by Jesus at the cross. This person will be transformed from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. That should be your goal, that tomorrow I look more like Jesus than I did today, and the day after that I'll look more like him than I did tomorrow. Become a witness of and for Christ to the world. Emanate love. This person who's, who's been born again will emanate, will, will have these characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as the attributes of your life, of God himself being inside of you. I lost my place. There's only like five more pages. 
that person's life will no longer be marked by the practice of sin. Think about that. I want a righteous life. He says, okay, I'll put my spirit inside of you. My seed will abide in you. Therefore, you will not live a life of sin. You can't live a life of sin. Now, the flip side of that is if I am living a life of sin, it may be an indication, probably is an indication that Jesus ain't in there. Go back to square one, respond to the gospel. Lives cannot be marked by the practice of sin, but their lives will produce righteous behavior because of the seed of God abides in them and they're born of God. There you go. The benefit of the gospel is not just that you get to go to heaven and not hell. The benefit of the gospel is you can be restored back to the very likeness of God himself in Jesus Christ. That you can emanate that glory into this world such that Jesus would be glorified through us. And we can give to him that died for us a wonderful increase for the suffering that he did for everybody. Amen? Father God, I pray that this is deep inside of all of us, that, that I'm sure that it'll be hard to digest all of this all at once, Lord, but I pray that every person in this room would either come to the knowledge that they haven't been born again and seek you through the gospel in repentance and faith or press themselves in, study to show themselves approved, to be able to present to people that are dying in this world, that are already judged under your wrath such that they might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.